Welcome to CineLit. My name is Adam Marsh and I am joined as ever by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm great, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to today. Fantastic. Hopefully we'll continue on in our fine form. We've had two great podcasts we've got this year. Been very happy with what we've done this year. Cut the Kong one. Sat and listened to it again myself. Um, just for fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to it all over again. So hopefully we'll carry on. We're continuing our series of podcasts looking at the Oscars of years past. Um, and we began with 1976, um, a couple of podcasts ago, and we are continuing today. Um, for this episode, though, we have a very special guest. Director Dominic Burns is joining us. Dom has been spending the last few years in producer mode, producing Madness in the Method, starring Jason Mewes, and then uh, doubling down on the Mewes train with uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot last year. Dom, how are you? Here to break the streak, mate. Break the 2021 streak. <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> i did love that kong uh, podcast i listened to it, I thought it was great yeah I was, I, was, I was very very pleased that kong one hopefully we'll come back to that with uh some godzilla ones in the future uh but today we're not talking about that we're talking oscars again dom you've chosen the year 1994 so the oscar ceremony was 1995 um was there anything particular reason why you chose this year yeah there was loads of reasons uh, I, I mean I guess I guess they always say that the the films that have the biggest impact on you are the films that you grew up watching. And I think it was around this time I was like uh, I was 13 in 94 and I guess I was sort of really forming up what my taste in films was going to be and uh, and all the films in different ways on that um on that nominated list for best film that year all had a an impact on me and they all have uh, I I feel like each one of those films played a part a formulative part in what my film taste is today. So it just seemed like um, it was around there that I, I've always been a big fan of the Oscars. I watch them every year for my sins. And, uh, and it was also kind of before I understood the politics of the Oscars. And I, I thought there was some kind of pureness to the, the whole process. Um, so I guess I was still, I was still a little bit innocent, but also forming up my taste. And, and ultimately, I guess the main reason is that Pulp Fiction kind of gone to my head is and remains my, uh, has been since I saw it, my favourite ever film. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you get no argument here on Pulp Fiction. Um, I, it's, it's funny you say about, about formative years, and this was the year that my uh, the bubble of the Oscars burst for me. <laughs> it was like I was like 17, 18. I was going in there. I was a huge Pulp Fiction fan. This is the this is the one, and and then obviously you know as we now know. It was never going to win stuff. <laughs> it was never going to beat other films uh, of itself that year. So, and that's a trend that's continued and was there before. Um, so, it burst my Oscar bubble this year. But I did at this time. I was watching pretty much everything released. I was like, you know, seventeen, eighteen-year-old film fan. You know, um, sat in my bedroom <laughs> watching Alex Cox's movie drome and uh, loving movies. You know, so I saw absolutely everything um, that year, and uh, I think I saw all of these films on release. So it was good. So I'm perfectly happy to go back to that 20 years ago, 20 odd years ago to revisit. Um, cool. Yeah. So where should we start with the winner? <laughs> so um, in, in potentially um, one of the more surprising uh, Oscar wins of the year, Forrest Gump swept the board, beating a Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Four Weddings and a Funeral and Quiz Show. Quiz Show to uh to, to win the best picture oscar and it also garnered best actor best director best special effects best adapted screenplay and best film editing as well so he didn't just win one it swept swept the board um where do we want to start with forrest gump dom 
Seems like you've chosen the year. You pick your pick your pick your potato on this one. How 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 are you uh, defending this one? Because <laughs> it is it well, is a controversial <laughs> choice for winning the Oscar. I feel like you're. I feel like I'm being teed up here, boys. There was there was a vote uh, taken. I think twenty years later, and they looked back at different um, Oscar years and asked Academy members if they would vote differently now, and they overwhelmingly voted to vote. Shawshank Redemption as the uh, best Oscar winner that year. Well, I mean, first of all, um, I guess that there's there's two parts to my Forrest Gump answer. Firstly, do I think it was the best film of that year? No. Do I think it was one of the best five films of that year? No. I think there's numerous other films that could have been on that list. Um, but um, but I think that Forrest Gump is probably the most divisive film I've ever known. I've never known like people either absolutely love it and defend it vigorously or can't stand it. And I must admit, I love it. I am a fan of it. I mean, the problem is, is that despite my loving it, I don't think it had any business winning the best film. So it's a difficult kind of balance to, you know, but I do. I think it's, um, I thought it was incredibly original, very brave of uh, Hanks to take that on and just go for it in that manner because it could have gone very, very, very wrong for him. I thought, um, I, I remember seeing it and I loved the way that it incorporated um, historic events into the time. Like, I just I just bought into it. I just, I, re- I enjoyed it. What can I tell you? I don't think it's um, Pulp Fiction. I don't think it's Shawshank Redemption. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that it has wonderful merits and I think it's a real feel-good movie and it's a story that I found myself sincerely emotionally invested into. And I know people, literally, I can hear people on the other end of this podcast going, you know, just yelling abuse at me because I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about. And then other people are sort of cheering me on and patting me on the back and agreeing with me. It's just one of those crazy films that just divides people so passionately. And by the look on both your faces, I can tell that I'm about to get battered by you. <laughs> no, not battered. I mean, I, I, I've literally, in my notes, I've put, it's a nice film. And that's literally, it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a nice film. It passes the time. And if it hadn't been nominated for Oscars and it hadn't been, it hadn't swept the board, then fair enough. You know, it was a nice film of that year. I mean, it, it took more money than God that year, didn't it? You know, it literally like, r- raked in the cash that year. I mean, I think at the end of that year, it was the eighth highest grossing film of all time. You know, some, or something like it was in, it was in the top five or six or something like that. Star Wars being above it, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was a massive success. It was like, it was the box office hit of, of the nominations that year. And I think, I think this it's definitely got some certain things going for. It. I mean, it's a, it's a very well-made film. Robert Zemeckis tends to make very well-made films, you know, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. They, they, they kind of paper over, they're not quite developed screenplays in some of his films. You know, they're not quite as further far as long as they want to before we start shooting. But he definitely has that trick of blending his his love of special effects into a story where the effects impact on the story and are integral to the story. You know, you think about this one and think about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, the integral part of the special effects of the film. And then obviously later on with his, um, his motion capture love with things like Polar Express and... A Christmas Carol, you know, he's, he's, he carries on with that kind of, he makes it an integral part of the story. So he tends to get those movies where it's not just a special effect to make the scene more special effecty. You know, it's always tied to the story. And this was very much so with Forrest Gump, you know, with the um, editing and the, the splicing in of real life figures. Um, so it's a very well, it's a well-made film. I think it just, just has no business being... He has no business being on the Oscars list for me. Daryl? <laughs> but I tell you what, Joey, just to, just to very quickly jump in, if you think no, about sorry. it, much like, I mean, I, I'm not, I haven't really compared it to um, that many other different best film lists, but 
if you think about Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump are all going to be films that are going to be remembered by, I bet you anyone of any age has either, if they haven't seen them, I bet they've all heard of those, those films. It was a real f- a year of like very, very, very memorable films. And I don't think that's just because it was a formative year for me. My girlfriend's 10 years younger than me. She would, she's seen all of those films and has an opinion on all three. You know, it's, um, it was a, it's an interesting year for films that really stand out. So I thought it's gone definitely tapped into some sort of uh, feeling in the popular culture, feeling in the, in the air uh, of 1993-94. Definitely was there was something about that movie, and maybe it's the homespun American values kind of thing, you know, coming out of the sort of like greed of the 80s and and that harking back to sort of like a, a simpler time and a simpler person, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe maybe that tapped into something there. And obviously, I mean, you know, life's like a box of chocolates kind of line will live forever but you know it took so much money it was always going to live forever it didn't need the oscar to, to, to validate that either yeah i think dom's on to something here with uh, there are these sort of benchmark movies that came out in 94 and i'd i'd add four weddings and a funeral to the list as well and say i think four of these five films are ones that have got that sort of longevity. And you could tell that from right from the time when you were watching them, when you were sat in the cinema watching these films back in 94, you, you sensed you were watching something. Whether, whether you thought they were good or not didn't really matter. It was, you, you did sense from the word go, these are important movies. These are going to last. These are resonating with the audience. You can actually tell that with with the people sitting around you, you know. And and it's happened, I think. We, you know, as you say, even people that haven't seen these films have heard of them and know lines from them and know the important scenes from them and so on. Um, whether that's through parodies or whatever, you know. But uh, um, yeah, so it's a big year in that sense. Um, and the thing you've just mentioned, Adam, about the um, the sort of qualities of Forrest Gump and how it might sort of resonate with an audience at the time. I think the same thing applies to Shawshank Redemption as well there. And again, possibly to Four Weddings and a Funeral. So we've got a batch of films here that we're, we're going through them one by one. But I think we'll probably find ourselves jumping between them as we talk, because I think they've, they've got a, Certain of these films have got a lot in common, I think. But um, on Forrest Gump itself, I'm I'm not a fan uh, in particular. It's as you say, it's a nice movie. It ambles along. It's easy to watch. But I think if you want to get picky about it, you can. There's scope to do that. And um, my sort of main thing with it is that um, you guys have just you've, you've very pointedly given us your ages at the time when when you watch these movies. I was older than you guys at the time then and um, sort of twice your age. And um, I'd already seen a few movies that had been based on on this same sort of plot structure. And um, this idea of you've got this sort of bumbling figure who almost accidentally stumbles into important or significant events and occasionally has an influence on those events. And um, it all stems back to uh, Voltaire's novel from, I think, the 1750s or 1760s, Candide, which is where this this sort of story structure and this whole sort of plot line stems from. Um, There was a movie in the 60s written by Terry Southern uh, starring uh, Ava Aulin called Candy, uh, which had a big, big name cast of, of sort of supporting actors, people like Marlon Brando and so on. 
and that was the first movie that I saw that that sort of tried to update the Voltaire novel. Um, the the big one, I suppose, and the one that people will be aware of was uh, Woody Allen's uh, Zelig in the mid eighties, which again was an early attempt at the same type of special effects that that Zemeckis uses here in inserting a, a a figure, the figure played by Woody Allen in that film, inserting them into historical photographs or historical film footage and you see that here in Forrest Gump so when Forrest Gump came along there was an element of it for me that was well I've, I've sort of seen this you know it's sort of old hat as far as I'm concerned and and Zemeckis didn't seem to be doing anything different with it that that merited a new version of that story for me um that aside I, I think effects wise it's it is fantastic you know it works really well where it falls down for me is in the actual sort of meat of those scenes and as an example you've got this running gag where um forrest gump meets every president of the united states one by one and um there's the um the famous scene where he's inserted into uh, footage of uh, lbj where he's been given one of his many awards, one of his many medals, and um, and he goes to the White House and he actually shows his ass to the president, you know, and uh, um, and that all sort of seemed a bit forced and seemed a way of getting a bit of a cheap laugh to me, and uh, it it tonally I I I didn't sort of connect with the movie, and it didn't really seem to add very much to previous versions of this same sort of theme even i'd even throw in a film like um carl reiner and steve martin's the jerk there i mean the jerk isn't meeting sort of famous people as such but but what's happening with him is he's he's encountering people by accident and he's accidentally creating situations and and um uh creating developments in american culture and so on and um and making himself sort of rich in the process so again it's a very sort of candied like story and what i loved about the jerk is it took the voltaire novel and it actually did something different with it and it made it relevant to america in the late 70s early 80s and of course it's it's great fun as well you know it's one of those classic Carl Reiner, Steve Martin comedies, but uh, um, so I was I was bringing all of this baggage into Forrest Gump, which you guys may not have been when you saw it, and on that level, it didn't quite sort of measure up to me. And then when it started getting all the sort of attention and critical acclaim, and there was talk about it being nominated for Oscars and so on, I really resented that because I sort of thought, well, I've seen films that deserve that sort of attention. What I'm saying here is, why wasn't the jerk nominated for best picture in 19? 19- <laughs> <laughs> the, the, prob- the problem there, though, Jarrell, is if you go down that road, you know that way madness lies. You know, if you yeah, start thinking, indeed, indeed, films yeah. nominated for Oscars. But just, just I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I can't resist um, a quick recommendation that I think people who listen to this podcast might get. And it, what you were talking about reminded me of it. I've, I've spoken to you about it before, Adam. There's a book I read called um, I think it was called Johnny Roselli. Uh, or Handsome Johnny, I think it was called, and it's the Mob's Man in Hollywood, and it's about this. It's all based on the truth. It's all uh, you know. It's, a, it's not a fiction book. It's a factual book, and it's about this guy Johnny Roselli, who was this mobster, um, and 
the events of his life play out like, and I, I describe the book bizarrely as basically like Forrest Gump in the way that he turns up in these and is involved in, albeit peripherally, in these incredible historic events, you know, like, and it's just, it's almost in the world of the, um, of Scorsese's The Irishman in, in that, it's certainly in that world. And, uh, but this, this Johnny Roselli book is unbelievable. If you like, you know, the idea of this, this mobster who was involved in, you know, um, Chicago in, in, uh, with, um, Al Capone right up to the, um, assassination of JFK. I mean, it's quite, it's incredible. This book is, it really is. And so if that's the sort of thing you do enjoy, obviously outside of Forrest Gump, then I really can't recommend this um, Handsome Johnny book enough. It's such a fascinating read because I'm also obsessed with that period. Anything 50s, 60s, you know, around that, I'm just, especially in America, I just, I just find it so utterly gripping. Just the other day I watched um, 13 Days again, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis movie with Kevin Costner. And so I guess that not only um, was I at the right age, and I definitely think that played a factor when I watched Forrest Gump, but I was also kind of, I'm, I, I just already love that period, anything Vietnam related or, or all that, you know, that whole period I'm already interested in before I even start. So I guess that I was coming in with that bias as well. That's one of the criticisms of Forrest Gump is that it, it, its treatment of history is very much, I mean, he grows up in a southern town and everyone's white. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, like there's, yeah. there's, in the 1950s, there's a golden period in, in, in that period. I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you spoke to a lot of uh, black southerners, they wouldn't have the same, <laughs> the yeah. same viewpoint. Yeah, and I think that, and, and that ties in definitely with the feeling in 1994. And it was like, you know, we, we, we know that, that it's claimed to be a conservative film, a Republican film. They, 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 they championed it as a, a return to good old American values kind of thing. And you can see little inroads on where they would have got that, leapt to that conclusion from the film. Yeah, even even the Vietnam segment, which is probably the longest sort of se- individual sequence in the film, almost as though Zemeckis wanted to make a little mini movie about Vietnam, you know, and put it in the middle of this. Even, even that is upbeat's the wrong word, I suppose, when you're talking about a war film. But it's in comparison with the Vietnam movies that we'd seen, it, it is a more sort of positive sort of yeah. view of that war it's, it's it ain't platoon a, is it you know <laughs> no no it's 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 selling us the idea of the american hero within the middle of that little sort of vignette that we see you know and and um rather than focusing on on the fact that people on both sides are being sort of riddled with bullets or blown up and that they're all they're all about 18 or 19 and this whole thing about wasted lives and so on. there's there's none of that in in forest gump it's all about um isn't it cool to be making a vietnam movie within the movie and and isn't it great that forest turns out to be a medal winning hero you know um uh, one one other uh, uh, another thing that sort of connects with that scene in particular and connects with that early part of the movie which may have disappointed older viewers like me more than it did you guys is the use of uh, music in the film because for me hearing stuff like uh, you know for what it's worth and the doors tracks and everything um i was just rolling my eyes and thinking you couldn't have picked a more obvious set of songs to sell the night and soundtrack the 1960s and haven't all of these songs been used in loads and loads of films already but yet i'm sure an audience coming along to forest gump aged 14 15 16 17 may well have thought hey 
you know, these songs are new to me. You know, I, I, they, they sound really cool. That's you know? an interesting I, point. That's an interesting point, though, Daryl, because like, if we move, if it's like segue into Pulp Fiction, for instance. Now, Pulp Fiction was definitely sold on its soundtrack as well. Yeah, but in a whole different way. It was a whole different. You know, this, this is a curated soundtrack by Tarantino. This is not like thrown together with a, whoever's the hit, hit maker of the day and drop a track on there. Reservoir Dogs, the the, the album Reservoir Dogs sold. M- tons of records that year and Pulp Fiction and album sold tons of records yeah. that year as well so the music like, was like so the soundtracks the soundtracks are almost directed by Quentin Tarantino yeah yeah absolutely you know especially with the dialogue clips in the, in those as well yeah, yeah. so um yeah let's move, let's move away from Forrest Gump let's move on to um should we move on to Pulp Fiction because that's like, arguably one of the ones that was probably more deserving of the Oscar that year maybe um it 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 was hot. It was a hot film that year. It wasn't. It wasn't just that sort of like this is a good film. We're going to nominate it and give it awards. That was definitely part of it. But it was the Palm Door winner. You know, it was the Palm Door winner the previous April, the previous April. Yeah, so it was May, and it got it got uh, it got booed at the ceremony by a section yeah. of the crowd. Yeah. yeah, it caused all sorts of controversy in in uh, in Cannes. I mean, obviously, I didn't know that at the time. I've only found that out since. And there's a, yeah. a, a I think if I'm, I could be wrong here, but I think there's a famous shot of Tarantino flipping someone off in the crowd who's booing his film as he collects the, the palm door. But it had that kind of that, that you know, that's one of the many things I love about it, because it had that kind of fuck you. I don't care. This is me and this is who I am and this is what I am. And it was like, for me, it was, you know, began that uh, my understanding, at least of that independent movement of like, we're going to make the films we want to make. And again, I'm a huge fan of Kevin Smith's clocks. Obviously I've got one hand to work with Kevin and, and produce his movies and be part of that universe. And uh, this was the year that 94 was the year that Clarks was released. And, you know, it'd done the same thing. There was, you know, there was Kevin Smith and Rodriguez and Soderbergh and obviously Tarantino and just all these incredible voices, Richard Linklater and just voices I've gone on to just follow the careers of and love. And, and, um, and, and I think that Pulp Fiction, just there's something about that movie, the attitude, the feel, I mean, Daryl mentioned the soundtrack of Forrest Gump. I mean, I was a big fan of 50s, 60s music growing up. So there was no, I loved, I actually did love the Forrest Gump soundtrack, but it wasn't like I knew all the songs. Whereas Pulp Fiction, a lot of the songs in Pulp Fiction, I was just getting introduced to. I bought the soundtrack. I bought the special edition soundtrack. I, you know, I listened to the dialogue over and over and over because I couldn't see that film in the cinema. I couldn't get in. So I had to, you know, I just had clips and I eventually bought like, I don't know if you remember back in the day, you would get, um, you could get a VHS copy, but before you could buy a VHS copy, Tarantino's movies were the first movies I ever saw that you could actually buy an HMV. You could buy a rental copy and the, the box was double the size or not yeah. double, but significantly bigger than a normal size VHS. And obviously like a video shop would buy a rental version, which was like 70, 80 quid, I think, so that they could rent it out and rent it out and rent it out. But they weren't generally on sale in HMV. You had to wait another three or four months for the normal VHS copy. But the demand was so high to get hold of Pulp Fiction, they actually sold a rental version of Pulp Fiction. That people could actually go to HMV and buy the damn, the actual rental version themselves just so they could own it. You know, it was just, um, I was just desperate to get anything that I could get hold of. And the, the soundtrack, I still listen to the soundtrack now, you know, it just blew me away. I mean, I don't even know where to start with with the film. I mean, I was a I was a Travolta fan going in, but then Travolta had disappeared off the radar. No, I, no, I knew... no. He hadn't disappeared off the radar. He was doing Nothing talking baby talking. movies. 
He's yeah. been talking baby movies. He didn't just go off the radar. He was rescued from doing talking baby movies. And I'm just trying to think. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'd seen Samuel L. Jackson in um, Jurassic Park. Um, but I, I was aware of him from Jurassic Park. I'd probably seen him in other films before that. But I, So I knew Samuel L. Jackson from Jurassic Park, but I'd obviously seen him, never seen him playing this type of character. I knew Harvey Keitel. You know, I was just... The, the film just, I don't know, just um, everything about it just blew me away. And it was the first film really where I was like, I always knew I wanted to be in movies. I always knew I wanted, I actually wanted to act originally. But Pulp Fiction, when I saw that, I was like, well, that's it. I'm now going to dedicate my life to getting into this business somehow. Because it just, I just, it just, you know, everything about it just blew me away. I still think it's got the funniest, single funniest sight gag that made me laugh more than any other film when he shoots Marvin in the face. I mean, I thought I was going to fall off the seat laughing. You know, it was just so, so funny and so out of nowhere. And then the and the arguments that they're having when they're doing these like ridiculous tasks, like mopping up a body, and they're just but they're just falling out and completely forgetting the fact that that you know it just the whole thing was just nuts to me. And I, and I and I'm well aware since that Tarantino's influences are far and wide, and sometimes you know it can be argued that you know he he um, his influences were quite closely lifted and put into Pulp Fiction and into his work. But but but. But what I will say about Tarantino's work is that you know when you're watching a Tarantino movie. You know, if, if somebody, if for some reason I'd been in a cave or whatever and I hadn't, wasn't aware that Tarantino had made a new movie and it was just on the TV playing, I feel like I would know that it was the Tarantino movie. He has a style, he has a unique style and, and I just absolutely love it. You know, I love it. And Pulp Fiction is... Now, funnily enough, I know when, as you said earlier, Daryl, I know we'll probably flick between all the films and we're focusing on Pulp Fiction, but even though Pulp Fiction is my favourite film ever made, um, Shawshank Redemption is probably my second favourite film ever made. And were you to ask me which film I think should win the best film at the Oscars, I would actually say Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. Strange. This is this is this is why you've picked 1994 as the year, Dom. We could see all your favourite films came out that year. Well, I think that, and, I, and I'll explain that a bit more when we get onto Shawshank Redemption. Sure. But um, but 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 yeah, Pulp Fiction is um, I think is a perfect movie. I think it's original. I think it's fresh. I think the cast are in- incredible, all on absolute blistering form. The dialogue, the cinematography, the music, everything about it, I just think is pure, pure, pure class. And I love every frame of that movie. It's it's definitely a step up as well. It's not just a case of like. Oh no! No, everyone's finally discovering how Tarantino, how great Tarantino was. Reservoir Dogs was a very good movie, but it was a very good genre crime film. Whereas with this one, it stepped. It was still, it was still a crime film, but there was there was much more of an art house sensibility about this. There's much more about actually. There's this. There's an auteurism to this movie that probably wasn't as much there in Reservoir Dogs as it is in this one. Obviously, the structure, structuring like a novel, becomes part of Tarantino's style going forward. He comes back to that structure uh, again and again, and he definitely like was let loose on his on his influences. Like you said, with, and with this movie, I think more than potentially any of his other movies. He manages to blend that what's him and what's his influences and make them work for each other better in this movie than any of his other movies, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not just lifting the scene from City on Fire so he can have it uh, at the end of First of Our Dogs and just playing it with his characters. He's doing something different with it. He's, he's bringing those influences and making those influences work for his film. 
I've always said about Tarantino, he's he's always got his critics who carp at him. And a lot of them, I think, people who say they hate his films, I think are just jealous that he sort of got in first and, and is doing what they would like to do. You know, he's he's become the sort of movie geek that made it. And I think there are a lot of movie geeks out there that haven't made it who sort of almost resent the fact that, that one of us sort of climbed out of the pile and got to where he got. Now, I I don't see him as ripping off other movies. I I've always equated it, and I did right from the start, right from seeing Reservoir Dogs. I actually compared this with what you were seeing in 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 rap and hip hop in the eighties. Um, I I I think he was the first person to do sampling in in film. I think I think he he did he did steal scenes from other movies, and he openly admitted it. But what he was able to do was, as you say, Alan, recreate those scenes with his own actors, but importantly, stick them all together, lace them together and make a coherent plot out of out of doing that in the way that somebody might take a Jimmy Page riff or a drum pattern from a James Brown record, stick all that together get a rapper or a, a, a crew performing over the top of all that and making a, a, a sort of killer 80s track. You know, Tarantino's doing that in movies and he was the first guy to do that. It was like a new breakthrough in film. And the, what, what he also did as well is, um, is educated people because a lot of the films that he was referencing and a lot of the films that he was allegedly stealing from people might not necessarily have seen. So it was almost like him saying, hey, guys, I think Charles Bronson's really cool. Go and see his movies. I'll stick a little Charles Bronson movie poster in the background of a scene so you know that I like him. And if you've not seen his films, go and see them. If everyone's saying that I've stolen a scene from City on Fire, go and see it. You know, you've probably not seen it. That's the reason I did it, to, to make you aware of what a great movie it is. You should see it. So he was always open about that. I think I think the thing is, is I don't at all uh, buy into the fact that he stole from other... And I don't think many... I don't think anyone really takes that that seriously, to be honest, the notion that he was stealing from other films. I really don't. I think that his work is scrutinised so closely because he's got so many fans and his work is so high profile that inevitably there, there, is, um, there is comparisons drawn to where his influences came from. And I think that any filmmaker, any filmmaker in the world... Um, who hasn't, you know, is, is anyone who's writing, anyone who's directing, anyone who's making a movie is always going to be drawing from things that have influenced them, things that have ex- inspired them. And uh, I mean, you know, if you look at Spielberg, he lifts direct shots and no one's talking about him being, you know, like no one's talking about him stealing stuff off other movies. He's just, in, he's just openly influenced by the things that have, uh, that he's passionate about. And, and I don't, and I know you've uh, met Tarantino, Daryl, and I don't mean to, I'm not, genuinely not trying to sound name droppy here, but I've had the privilege of meeting Tarantino numerous times and his passion is so infectious. It's yeah. unbelievable. I remember, um, can't remember if you were there, Adam, um, when we were in Cannes one year and we got to see uh, Pulp Fiction on a beach. Now, anyone who's been to any of these kind of um, screenings where you get like, you know, the filmmakers or the actors introduce a screening, then more often than not, what will happen is, uh, and I've done this myself, so I'm not, you know, just to be clear, is that, you know, the director or the actor will go in, introduce the, the film, and then will slip out the back when the film starts. You know, they might walk up the red carpet and do the press and do the interviews and then slip out the back. 
which is fair enough. You know, you, you know, you've seen the film enough times. You can't, you know, sometimes you just can't face it and through it again. I remember in um, when we watched Pulp Fiction in Cannes, Tarantino rocks up with Travolta and Uma Thurman and Harvey Weinstein and um, and um, Lawrence Bender. I think might have been there. I can't remember now. There was those. Was, it was chaos. And not only did he um, he introduce the film, he was like he was engaging with everybody, and then he sat down and watched the whole thing with us um, and bought everyone pizza and was laughing and yeah, just being part of it. He he lives for what we live for, you know. And I feel like his passion spills onto the screen and then he just takes his passion and shapes it into exactly what he wants to shape it into and these happen to be some of the most exciting films I've ever seen some of those interesting fascinating films and sometimes they're influenced off other movies and sometimes they're unbelievably original and you know the way he fucks with um oh sorry I don't know if I can swear can I swear don't worry we're talking about four weddings and a funeral bit so love swears <laughs> okay cool <laughs> The way he and the way he uh, messes with history in some of his more recent films. I mean, I, just, I, I, I'm a, I mean, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm a huge fan of Tarantino. I think he's absolutely incredible. And I, I, Pulp Fiction remains my favourite of his films because um, it's my favourite of any film. Um, but um, but no, I mean, just to sort of just to clarify, in case I didn't mention it a couple of times, I don't buy into the fact that he's stolen some of the films. I feel like he he is massively influenced, sure, but I think who, what filmmaker isn't. What he does is he, he expertly laces his influences into his own storylines. I think he carries that off really well. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult to write anything that is sincerely, genuinely original. And in all fairness, that's when you see something original. That's why it makes such an impact on you. And I felt that watching Pulp Fiction just felt unbelievably fresh, unbelievably original, and still to this day has an impact on me. And I still get... As crazy as it sounds, but this is how passionate I am, I guess. When I put Pulp Fiction on now, I still get butterflies, genuinely. Whenever I, even if I just put it on the DVD and just watch it now, that's, that's how much it had a, it, an impact on me. It just blew me away. Yeah, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm the same about Tarantino. I, I, was, I was part of the, the generation that sort of uh, caught on right at the start. You know, we Reservoir Dogs sort of blew everyone away, you know. And, um, uh, and, Tarantino became quite a big figure in the East Midlands in 93, 94, because he came over to um, the Shots in the Dark festival that was held in Nottingham. And uh, I mentioned uh, um, we we did a podcast with uh, John Martin um, in uh, September last year, talking about Dario Argento's films. Now, John actually got the opportunity to go out for a meal with Tarantino in Nottingham in 93, when he came over to scream Reservoir Dogs. And, uh, and the great thing is, this is a bit like your story about him buying pizza, Dom. John and Tarantino are in a bar in Nottingham having a meal, and John's interviewing him for his, uh, his fanzine, uh, Jalo Pages, which specialised in covering um, Italian exploitation movies. And um, the whole world wanted to interview Tarantino at that time because Reservoir Dogs had been a smash. Everybody wanted to talk to him. Everybody wanted to ask him about Reservoir Dogs and find out what he was doing next and so on. Now, Tarantino's idea of a great interview was to go out to a bar in Nottingham with my mate John, have a pizza, and sit chatting not about his own movies, not about Reservoir Dogs, not about what was coming next, but to talk to John for two and a half hours about Italian exploitation films. <laughs> and it made a great interview. I've still got my copy of the magazine with, with the interview in it. And you can tell Tarantino's having a ball. But isn't that why isn't that why he's so beloved? 
Yeah, that's exactly is. the it reason is. why, isn't it? It's, it's not is. him banging on his own, talking about it. He's literally going there, oh yeah. my God, you need to see some Sergio Martino movies. It's that kind of infectious enthusiasm. Another story from Nottingham is that uh, 94, he came to Shots in the Dark and they they used to do a surprise movie on the Saturday night. And we all knew it was going to be Pulp Fiction. We'd oh. all got our tickets. We knew. Someone said, if this film isn't Pulp Fiction, we're going to burn the place down. You know, we're, we're <laughs> going to tear it to pieces. Uh, we're all waiting for this so-called surprise movie that we all knew what it was going to be. And it is Pulp Fiction. It turns up it had only played at Cannes the week before. So we were the second audience in the world to see it. Oh, and wow, that's amazing. It was fabulous. What a night. It was one of the great nights ever. And Tarantino again was there and watched the film with everyone. And I'll tell you, we, we had no idea what we were in for. And you could sense the waves of uh, A, relief, I think, that it was a great movie. And B, the, the joy in in how how great it was. You could just sense these waves going across the audience. The big thing with that film at the time was uh, you, you've already mentioned the casting of John Travolta. Um, he he was actually seen by by most most. Again, this might be an age thing, but I think people of my age and older saw Travolta as totally washed up. I mean, he 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 done the look who's talking stuff and uh, made a little bit of a comeback through that. Now, even even at, even at my age, Daryl, we we were well aware that you know the perception of Travolta was definitely that he was washed. He, up. he was he was dead. He was dead. And when it was announced that he'd been cast in Pulp Fiction, a lot of my mates were sort of saying to me, "Oh, what's what's Tarantino doing? Why is why is he cast this this has been?" You know. Now I'd read a couple of interviews with him where he talked about Travolta in the wake of, of Reservoir Dogs. And he was really bigging up his performance in Brian De Palma's blowout. And so when the news was announced that Travolta was cast, I didn't bat an eyelid because I thought, ta- ta- I've, I've seen Tarantino say in interviews that John Travolta is his favourite actor of all time. And so a lot of other people were, why is, why is this has been? Why, why is this guy that we don't like? cast in in the lead role in in Tarantino's new film and I just said wait and see wait and see you'll find out and boy did they you know it's a fascinating thing with him with John Travolta because he's got he's obviously got terrible taste in films personally because every time he gets control over his career he just tends to just drift off into 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 nothingness really yeah and uh, he almost turned down get shorty like a couple of years after, whatever, yeah. after he was on the high, he almost turned down. Tarantino told him to take that role. Obviously, Tarantino being a huge Elmo Leonard fan and would go on to do Jackie Brown based on an Elmo Leonard book, you know, he, he, he's take the role, take the role. You'll be great in it. It'll be fantastic. You know, and lo and behold, he was, and it was great. <laughs> yeah, because I know the studio were desperate for Tarantino not to cast Travolta, weren't they? They were absolutely yeah, desperate. Yeah. I'd say studio. Well, they, he, he, he was box office poison. He wasn't just seen as box office poison. He actually was. You put him in your movie, it's going to die, you know. And uh, and Tarantino, luckily, had got enough power through the impact of Reservoir Dogs and through doing the whole interview circuit and promoting himself that he he seemed capable of of, of overriding that and saying, I'll, I'll put whoever I want in my movie. And thank God he did, you know. 
But yeah, it was but, Kate, it was but, Harvey Keitel that got the Reservoir Dogs finance, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, that that's was, right. that, and Keitel enabled Tarantino to make the film he wanted to make with uh, with Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you got to. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I know that. I mean, that, that, that you know when fighting against the system to get your movie made and, and sticking to your guns is just unbelievable. I mean, the pressure he must have been under. Yeah, fair play yeah. to him for holding his, you know, holding. Well, his, yeah, when Reservoir Dogs went through about fifteen different Sundance scriptwriting labs, um, and, you know, it received a bit of funding. He got to the point where that screenplay wasn't going to get any better. It was literally, it was like this, this, this is going to go now, and it's a great screenplay, yeah, it's hope, a hot screenplay. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, uh, Kaitel, he would have got that funded if it if it wasn't Kaitel, someone else would have come on board for that screenplay. I think. There's funding and funding though. There's yeah. there's there's funding where other people are still going to be pulling the strings, and there's funding where you can go out and make the movie you want to. And I think he got the second of those. Well, I'm going to direct this question to Daryl because I think Don's made his opinions very explicit on this. Does it hold up? <laughs> oh man, does it? Oh, in, insanely so. Gets better and better and better. Yeah, the thing I I I thought about as i was watching this and it's like it's, it's and, and it occasionally crosses my mind it's like the scenes that i absolutely adored when i was 18 19 they're still great but they're not the ones that i come back to and the, and the table the scene that i always come back to now and i always think it's just a great scene and at the time i just thought it was um a filler scene and you know Tarantino's renowned for doing dialogue for dialogue's sake sort of thing there's no point to this dialogue scene. it's just cool dialogue but it's a scene with bruce willis's character butch and uh, Maria de Meridos's Fabienne character, yeah. where she's just talking about wanting a pot belly. That <laughs> yeah. scene, yeah. Oh, that fabulous. scene. Fabulous. It just, but it just, it just like, it makes me realise that Tam- when Tarantino wants to, he can do subtle, subtle yeah. layered dialogue. And that scene, all about her wanting to have a baby with Butch, subtly fed in with this, I want to have a pot belly. Wouldn't it be great if I had a pot belly? I was a normal woman, normal this, normal that, but just with a perfectly formed pot belly. It's like, it was just really cleverly done. And that's the scene that I keep coming back to as I've gotten older and older. And I think that shows how, how rich these films are and were and always will be, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Tarantino movie that, that, that really, really gets panned for, for what is seen as excessive dialogue is Death Proof. And I think in time, even that is going to be judged in that same way. I think people will be coming back to those dialogue scenes and saying, Oh, we can see what he was doing now. Um, so, you know, mark mark my words. Maybe in twenty five years, that will be seen as the great film. It really. All is. right, I'll put, I'll put it in my diary. We'll re, we revisit Death Proof in twenty five <laughs> years time. So, uh, so, boys, what's uh, what before we move on? What's what's in the case? The script to Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all 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 I can say is. You know, coming back to this influence thing, it's it's clearly a ripoff of the end of Kiss Me Deadly from the 50s. And you never quite found out what was in the case then, other than it caused the end of the world. I think it's uh, Marcellus Wallace's soul. I don't I, I, I don't think it matters. I've heard, I've heard <laughs> that said. I've heard that said. It doesn't matter. Um, That's not the point. Yeah, it's you should whatever, never ask. Yeah, whatever it is, it's the most important thing in the world. Yeah, you should never. Ask yeah, Tarantino. but the thing is, it's one of those things where it's like it ultimately doesn't matter because it's the effect it has on characters. Yeah. It's not what yeah. it is itself. It's, it could be. It could be a brick a in a case. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 It is. But it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun the, kicking around yeah. theories, though, right? Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
So, so obviously this didn't win best Oscar, and, when, and as, as as you were saying, Daryl, earlier before we started recording, when the the ceremony was going and uh, the best original screenplay was announced, and Tarantino and uh, Roger Avery get up there to accept, everyone knows at that point that's your lot. That's what you're getting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but there was that there was that sort of like and then you know, that kind of feeling of like, well, the film's been nominated. That's your that's your win. You know, it, that that resonates throughout the years. And with this movie, it did feel to me as an 18-year-old, maybe naively so, but this was the one that was going to book the trend. This wasn't yeah. the one. It wasn't just a cool little film that, you know, that did all right at the box office and, and managed to get awards. This won the Palm Door, for goodness sake. You know, this was this was riding a wave of American independent cinema that was sweeping across Europe, getting kudos at... at can film festival so you'd had like sex lies and video take one the palm door in 89 you had david lynch winning the palm door in 1990 you've had um port fiction winning there but you also had like western films things like the piano winning so you had this wave of sort of like english language films winning at Cannes film festival yeah, yeah. there's there's also the sense in this oscar line because we've already talked about that um at least at least three of the films are films that you'd think would appeal to the same sort of audience and the same bunch of critics and are sort of saying the same sort of sending out the same sort of positive vibes to their audience and and, and their viewers. And there was this sense that Pulp Fiction might just slip in under the radar and that Shawshank Redemption, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral and Forrest Gump might have a bit of a split vote. That you know, the same people would like those three films. And if they all voted for different movies within that little cachet, Pulp Fiction might just sneak through and nab it. But it did feel uh, like it was riding a wave of momentum as well, though. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, a big yeah. box office hit as well, you know, on top yeah, of the yeah. foreign award love, you know. So it just felt like, okay, but this is the year. And obviously it wasn't. <laughs> but there you go. But shall we move on to shall we move on to one of the other ones? Where do you want to go to now, Dom? I don't mind, mate. Do you want to go Shawshank Redemption? Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Shawshank Redemption then. Um, interesting one, because it has become arguably the greatest film of all time. In the so, long, so they I, say. Yeah. So yeah. they say. Um, Nobody went to see it when it came out, though. I know because I did in a well, virtually think, empty cinema. I so. think this, this, I think this film, this film, and Quiz Show, in some ways, do symbolise the impact that Jaws had on cinema. And those blockbuster cinemas, because all through the eighties you had these blockbusters being released, released, and released. And this was came the year where you could no longer do a platform release in cinema. Shawshank was released on a platform release. Quiz Show was released on a platform. Both of them died at the box office. Got great critical acclaim, just didn't manage to land with audiences. It got to the point by this point in the early nineties where you couldn't platform a film. Everything had to go in one go, one weekend. So. Why, why, why do we think then that no, nobody went to see Shawshank? Why do we think it's now not only built an audience in retrospect, but it's built the, the biggest audience of any movie and it's now regarded as the best film of all time? I have a theory. I have a theory on this one. I mean, a lot of the common talking about why this is, this is caught on is because it had that platform release. It got the Oscar nomination it had it, it shipped over three hundred twenty thousand VHS copies in America, so it literally like was like they were banking big on it being a hit on VHS, which it was. It also went into TNT fairly early, 
and was repeated ad nauseum on American TV. So add all that building. And that's what they generally say, what turned the tide. I think there's something else we can add into it as well. I think that's the rise of Internet Movie Database. I think around that period, 93, 94, Internet Movie Database went from being the Cardiff Internet Internet Database, <laughs> as it was originally called. Uh, it became an independent company and it moved onto the World Wide Web in 1993. And more people were accessing the Internet during those, those two or three years after, after Shawshank was released. And it became that movie where, as long as I've known it, it's been number one on, on IMDb's top rated movies. And it yeah, still is. Yeah, I checked yeah. again today. It was like still on there as number one. Yeah, um, I, 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 I do get the impression that there are different different groups of, of people who have their own agenda surrounding Shawshank Redemption as well. I, I, I know a lot of people see it as uh, they, they like the sort of biblical quotations and the sort of religious aspect of it. And I know there are websites and so on where people sort of um, endlessly and rigorously sort of analyse the biblical verses that are quoted in it. So you've got that angle. And I, I think I think people appreciate the sort of nostalgic feeling of it, again, like some of the other films on this list. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's got these different sectors of the audience that love the film for different reasons. And then when you, when you club all of those together, it makes this sort of mass that, that send the film to number one. I mean, for me, um, it's a funny story, actually, because um, I remember we were all, well, I say we were all, my friendship group were all desperate to see Natural Born Killers, absolutely desperate. And um, obviously written by, well, the original version written by Tarantino. Yeah. And um, and um, my mate's dad, who was quite chill about these kind of things, bought us, um, took us to the cinema and bought me and my mate Ollie a ticket to uh, go and see Natural Born Killers. And as he handed us the ticket, because at the time, as you, you know, people who don't know, th- th- it was a really controversial film. Everyone was talking about it. Should it even be, should it be banned? Should it be, it was almost like in the neo-nasty era, wasn't it? And, uh, and my friend's dad handed a ticket to see the film to me and Ollie and then left. And I noticed, as, as, as his dad handed us over the ticket, I noticed the steward in the UCI in Derby had, had seen this happen and was watching us. And I said to my mate, and we were only 13 trying to get into this 18, I was like, I think we've been rumbled. And he's going, shut up, shut up, stop being an idiot. I'm saying, I'm telling you, they're looking at us, I'm telling you. And we looked over, and at this point, the steward had then gone and got the manager, and now was pointing at us right, and talking. And I'm, and I'm just going, they're definitely going to... They're de-, and, and, and obviously, seeing this, we were like, we didn't want to be embarrassed. So Ollie was like, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, let's just change the tickets and go and see something else. And he's like, well, what else? And so we went over, and I don't know if you remember at the time, uh, Daryl, at the UCI in Derby, they had like a perspective, like a perspec thing. Yes, yeah. A4 piece of paper about each film. And so we wandered over, and I was, we were just so embarrassed. We just wanted the moment to end and just go and see anything. We were just like, and I just said, look, this movie, this, it's, it's about a prison break or something. Yeah, it's going, yeah. So we went and said, can we just swap our tickets over? Because we bought tickets for the wrong film. And the person was like, yeah, no problem. And of course, they gave us two tickets to go and see Shawshank Redemption. So we went into the cinema having absolutely, I hadn't even heard of it, no idea what we were going to go and see. And, I, and like you, I was one of the rare, rare people who saw this film in the cinema. And I'm not kidding you, it just, it just blew us away, the pair of us. And, and ultimately, I think what Shawshank is, is I'm not, I hadn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't aware of the uh, element of people that um, see the religious side of it. And now you mention it, I can totally see that. But for me, it's a love story. It's a heterosexual love story between two men. And, um, and I think that, um, and at the, at the heart of it, that's what it is. And that's what, 
it just it just you know and and it's funny because I know there's a bit of controversy. I'd love to know what you guys, how you guys feel about this. But the film originally ended with Andy Dufresne. It ended with him finding the little spoilers, uh, the little um, rusty tin under the tree, and that's where apparently the film ended. And they showed, they tested it, and uh, and the audiences went um, went crazy because they want, they had to see again. I'm in spoiler territory, guys. If you haven't seen it stop the podcast, go and watch it, and then press play on the podcast as soon as you've watched it. If you haven't seen it, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. You should be watching it because it's unbelievable. It's good for the soul. You have to no, see we don't tell people not to listen to this podcast, though. On no, this no, podcast. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not done. <laughs> if anyone, if they go and watch, if they haven't seen Shawshank Redemption and they go and watch Shawshank Redemption because of this podcast, this podcast will now become the, the greatest thing in their lives because it gave them Shawshank Redemption. The cinematic soul food. And uh, so they had to. So they tested the uh, they tested the film, and uh, and the audience was just having none of it. So they then went and reshot the bit on the beach where Andy and uh, Morgan Freeman actually physically uh, you know get together. And I needed as personally, I, I need that scene. I absolutely, I want to be the mature filmmaker and say no, we don't need that scene. We understand what's happening, but no, I need to see those guys hug desperately. And I also think one of the most beautiful things about this film is that. It's in this masculine, horrible, tough environment, but actually, it is telling a story. It's kind of a, it's kind of an early film rallying against this sort of toxic masculinity. If you think about it, you know what I mean. It's like yeah, two, but two is guys. It though? I what think is it, it is because it's in love with each other, but they're not in they're not in like romantic love with each other. They're just so you know, it's 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 a it's a male love story, but but not you know without the sexual element, if you like. And I think that's. It, I think it's powerful and important. No, I really, it is. I just, I just meant the edgy, harsh surroundings of the cinema's nicest prison. You know, because it's quite a cushy prison, really, comparatively. Well, I tell you what. I mean, I don't know about. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> it's not. No, a prison, no, but comparatively, in cinema, in cinema terms, you know, it, it, you're not talking like. Um, uh, a profit or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I agree, Adam. Ah, yeah, it's, it's 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 one of the films. I I love the film, but it's one of the one of the elements of it that just sort of niggles at me. Is that you know it does look like a, a nice place to be. You know, they they're able to set up this massive prison library and all this, and uh, and you you barely you barely see a prison guard in in like whole waves of the movie um even even solitary confinement even the hellhole i i just seem, totally seems seems to be a, a place where you can sort of spend two weeks of reflection you know what? <laughs> it seems like a nice place to be Daryl, I agree with you. Like ninety percent of the time, I couldn't disagree more. It seems no, like I, an I can, I can, I can see, I can see what Adam's getting at here. I, I, I um, do, I do agree with him. In, in comparison with other movie prisons, and I'm sure in comparison with the real thing, it's, it's, you know, it's not exactly you've got, a holiday. You've got worms in your food, guards who beat you half to death if you're crying in your cell, and you've got obviously the. The uh, the sexual element, yeah, you, know, you know, it's it's it does not seem and and being in a a, a a tiny room on my own for two weeks is not where I want to go to reflect. No, no, I'm sorry, boys, I can't have it. And he built the library. That that that's kind of the point, you know. His his existence within that prison does make it a little bit more livable, a little bit more tolerable. 
yeah, accepted. Yeah, yeah. I uh, one one thing about this for me is that uh, I bought the um, the Stephen King uh, collection of novellas, uh, Different Seasons, was it called, when when it was published in the early eighties. And so I, I read um, I read all the stories. The one that was filmed as Stand by Me and uh, App Pupil that came out as a film. And there's one called The Breeding Method that I don't think has been filmed yet. And this story, which was in the book, is called Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. And I loved, I loved the novella, really, really enjoyed it. And with, with my movie casting head on, I thought, well, this is obviously going to get filmed sometime because all of Stephen King's books get filmed, you know. And, and as, I read, as I read Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, I thought, do you know, I can see Woody Allen directing and starring in this as Andy. And he'd, he'd get he'd get Tony Roberts to play Red, so that shows how much I know. Well, so. the, the original, they when Rob Reiner offered to buy the rights off Frank Darabond for two and a half million dollars, and his pitch was Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford as the two guys. Which which, and, which way round? Uh, Tom Cruise as Andy and Harrison Ford as as of course, as Red. yeah, yeah. The age, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So. Um, that you know that was his pitch, um, and yeah, yeah, apparently, apparently, Darwin considered it strongly, but ultimately said, "I think I think this is the movie for me. I think this is the movie for, to send me, send me on." Sort of yeah, thing. And, he, yeah. and he was absolutely right, but um, that, that 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 was the other take on it. And I think I think it's interesting, but I think it's not nearly as interesting as Morgan Freeman. Oh, I think Morgan no, Freeman no. just uh, elevates it's, this it's, movie. It's, it's Freeman's film. Absolutely. No, absolutely, it's yeah. Film. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it def- it defines that Morgan pers- Morgan Freeman persona that he's sort of played on ever since. Mm. Yeah. When you think of Morgan Freeman, you think of this type of character, and it all stems from that Stephen King story. I've not actually read the book, Daryl, but I hear in the book that it, he, he Andy Dufresne actually did it, didn't he? Do you know? I can't remember, Don. It's it's a while, long while since I read it. Another one of the criticisms of this movie is that Andy Dufresne is a bit too nice guy. In this movie, there's no element of doubt over whether he could have done it. You know, he's too much of a white hat, nice guy, Gary Cooper, you know. But but then because of that, on the the upside of that, doesn't that make you root for him all the way through the film? Possibly, but he's quite, he's relatively bland as, as a hero in that respect. That's possibly the intention. I think, because I think, I think the makers want to build up Freeman as as the conscience of the movie, and they want him to be the character that you're watching. So, so Andy is more of a cipher. That's also the point that he's an introvert, isn't he? Because the the judge makes the comment at the start that you know that he's uh, came across so cold, and yeah, you know yeah. that's why yeah. you can believe that you know that the, the jury and the judge believe that he did do it. Yeah, because he yeah. does have that because he's an introvert, and you know he does have that kind of almost you have to pierce through the shell to get to know the man, you know. And I feel like the film does that because at the start, I agree with you. You know, he does come across that kind of almost slightly standoffish, but I feel like his arc as we warm to him, as the film warms to him, as he becomes one of the gang of friends, and um, you know that that's um, I think it takes a little you know little work to get to know Andy, and I, I, but I'm willing to do it. And every time I like where it starts and where it finishes. But but I completely 100% agree with you both that it's Morgan Freeman's film. He's the heart, heartbeat of the movie, absolutely. We mentioned Frank Darabont, the director, and this was his big sort of breakthrough movie. He's only sort of sporadically worked since then. He's, he's, not, he's not made many films since then. But interestingly, of course, he's done what he himself 
describes as his uh, Stephen King prison trilogy because he made Shawshank. He then filmed The Green Mile, which is sort of King's semi semi sequel almost or, or in the same ballpark prison movie. And then Darabont filmed The Mist, the, the King 50 yeah. style horror science fiction thing, which again is about characters trapped in a particular setting, not in a not in a, an actual prison but trapped inside, um, uh, uh, in this case, a supermarket that they can't get out of. And, and, and it's, it's, it's great. It's so good. And, and Darabont has directed all three of those. And again, you know, we're, we're linking films together on this podcast, you know, and he's I think he's linked those three films together within his career. I think they'll be the three films that he's remembered for. I think he's definitely, he's always had that link with Stephen King. He was one of the first uh, dollar babies, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, um, yeah. Where he licensed the rights to a Stephen King shot for a dollar. The, the, the woman in the room. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he Oscar yeah. nominated yeah, yeah, was, in the early eighties. Yeah, and yeah. that got him into a writing career with uh, Charles Band. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and uh, he co-wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3 uh, with Chuck Russell. Um so it's, it, it, in some ways, it felt a little bit like, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm talking out of turn because it's not really for me, but it felt a bit like when Peter Jackson made Lord of the Rings and was, it was such a big success, it felt yeah. like it's one of ours making yeah. a big budget movie making, and making really a successful. proper film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making a proper film and doing really well for it. And it, I can kind of see the, 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 the parallels with Frank Darabont there. You know, he's come from yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, Fly 2, <laughs> you can roll that, and uh, The Blob, remake of The Blob. Yeah. Didn't um, did didn't he direct a film called Buried Alive or something in the early nineties? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what the link is between Frank Darabond and one of the more higher end potential nominees for this year's Oscars? No, I don't think I do. He co-wrote the first draft, early draft of The Rocketeer, which was co-written by trancers writers Paul DeMeo and Danny Bilson, who also wrote The Five Bloods last year. So, <laughs> there you go. If you want your nice little weaving of Oscar links, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Brilliant. So it's it's a it's a masterpiece, isn't it? I mean, as much as I'm as much as I'm finding elements to 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 niggle at and maybe it's 20 minutes too long and da da da, da all those kind of things that get leveled at it. It's still head and shoulders above the majority of films made yeah <laughs> you know so it's like you know it, it it was highly deserving of an oscar i'm surprised morgan freeman didn't get the oscar i mean tom hanks won the previous year for philadelphia was sorry adam to interrupt you was morgan freeman um was he a best supporting actor was he up for best supporting i don't think so was he up for the main no because best support best supporting actor he wasn't up for best supporting actor because best supporting actor is arguably the strongest best supporting actor lineup in cinema history, I think. This yeah, year. that was the that was the Sam Jackson year, Ooh, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah Sam yeah. Jackson was uh, was a uh, and, e- and even and even he didn't win. So <laughs> I always think those supporting actor categories are the most interesting. Yeah. I really do. Well, this year, this year was this year was stellar. Where you had Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction, you had Paul Schofield for Quiz Show, you had Gary oh. Sinise for Forrest Gump, you had Chas Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway, which is a great performance, and then you had the winner Martin Lando with Ed Wood. So, arguably, a stellar lineup of best supporting actors. But yeah, no, um, best actor, both John Travolta, John Travolta was put forward as best actor in that. And uh, Morgan Freeman, Nigel Hawthorne for The Madness of King George and Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool. So 
mean, Tom Hanks, it felt like an easy get. He was like, oh, we're giving him everything else. Why not give it to Tom Hanks? And Tom Hanks, had, I don't know, he won the previous year for Philadelphia. And he was like, come on, Morgan Freeman's better. It's yeah. a better performance. I, I must admit, I do. I mean, I think to what Tom Hanks did was very, very brave. And I, and I really, I genuinely, I know a lot of people don't, but I do respect him for it. I think fair play for going for it. But I, I must admit, if it was up to me, I would have given it to Freeman out of that line. Again, back back then, and it's still still the case to some extent today, but back then it was certainly a major issue, was was simply the the, the race thing, you know. Yeah. Was was the suggestion that look, we we've given and the and the same with Sam Jackson that year. It's we've given you the nomination. Shouldn't that be enough? You know, we've recognized you, but you're not you're not going to actually take an award home with you. Yeah, it's like I said at the start, isn't it? That you know, this was my innocent years before I understood the <laughs> politics. You know? In my head, it was like, well, yeah, I just couldn't work it out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's sad that you say that, but unfortunately, yeah, it's but reliable. you know, it's 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 what happens. Yeah, yeah. Hope, hope, yeah, and I think it's changing, but uh, still only gradually. But... Well, let's move. Let's move on to the final two. I mean, I, I mean, four weddings was the one that was always going to be in contention because it was a big hit, and uh, and like you said, Daryl was saying, it was potentially splitting the votes between three. Quiz Show was always the outsider. It was probably never going to win, but it was recognised that. Where do you want to go to next, guys? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk a bit about Quiz Show, which um, I, I, I don't think this meant much to audiences outside of America. And I'm not sure it even meant a lot to audiences in America because, you know, the, it's, it's a film about corruption on a 1950s American TV show. And I, 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 I can't see that as being great source material for, for an exciting movie. And the film does just sort of lie there for me. It never sort of elevates itself. It, for me, it never manages to sort of convey much excitement or drama out of, out of the, um, the, the, the sort of source situation. I think with with Quiz Show, it's one of those interesting things where they were trying to get it to represent the the sort of like end of innocence in American TV and film and culture, you know, in the in the nineteen fifties, early sixties, where you know we, we were on the doorstep of Vietnam, America was not going to be the American dream and it wasn't going to be the white picket fences anymore that that had gone Nixon was going to happen in the, you know, in the next 10 15 years so they were trying to harken back to that point where it actually went where was it where it, where American values finally went and I don't think that was what the message that American people wanted to hear in that well no because exactly because it that clashes directly with the <laughs> message of Forrest Gump yeah uh, and to some extent Shawshank Redemption yeah, you know yeah, it, yeah. It, it clashes with those sort of like those feelings so it's like it, it was it, but equally on the other hand Pete, America and um, Hollywood and Oscar do love films about their own media. They like exactly. films about Hollywood. They like films about Hollywood TV. They like, they like all that kind of stuff. So it already had a leg up on the Oscar ladder. Yeah. Well, yeah. well I'll tell you, for me, the um, I, I really loved Chris Show. And I had no idea about any of the bigger picture issues or what it was trying to say. I wasn't trying to say or what it was, you know, failing to say. I, I didn't think about any of that. And to be honest, I must admit, I've never really thought about any of those things until listening to you guys talk about it now, which is actually really interesting. But just on a pure face value level, I guess, I really, really love this movie. And, uh, and I, again, I find the period fascinating, performances, story. It really, really engaged me. And it engaged all of mine. It's a big, very popular in my friendship circle. And actually, this film is one of the ones I often pull out 
um, you know, if I'm chatting to someone and they're asking for a recommendation of a film that they've likely never seen or never heard of, but they're looking for something great, this is usually quite quite high up on the list that I give them because I just say it's it's the film's just disappeared, which I guess doesn't stand. You know, which which suggests. I was, about, I was literally just about to say it's like it's one of those interesting ones where the film that was nominated for best feature film in 1994 is on the you might never have heard of this movie yeah, list. Yeah, no, it's true. It is true. I mean, it was directed by Robert Redford, but it didn't have massive star power attached to it. But but I think the film's cracking, and and I've never introduced it to someone who hasn't loved it yet. You know, but but equally, that's not to don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for a second that it's better than Pulp Fiction or Shawshank. To be honest, again, as much as I love Quiz Show, if you look at the other movies that came out and that were floating around in 1994, there was probably a couple of other movies that you could certainly argue might have uh, been better placed on this list. But with that said, uh, I'm a huge fan of it. And I think actually I reckon there'll be one or two people that listening to this that won't have seen it. And I would strongly recommend, you know, just bang it. Don't get me wrong, it's not going to change your life or anything, but for a couple of hours, great entertainment. I, I think it really holds up as a great watch. Yeah, I'd say like Shawshank Redemption, it's got one killer central performance, which really does elevate it, which is for me is John Turturro. John Turturro. I think it's, he, he comes in and like Morgan Freeman, he, he steals the show. I totally agree. He's unbelievable in it. And the whole thing about Marty and I mean, yeah. just... and, and, and he's he's almost the opposite of Morgan Freeman in that he, he's not a likable character and Chichoro yeah. does nothing to make him likable. So he's yeah, almost no, the opposite agree, side yeah. of that coin. Yeah, but I really, I really, I mean, it's not a film that justifies the amount of time we've chatted away about Pulp Fiction and Shawshank and even Forrest Gump. But but it's a great movie. It's a really, really decent watch. I think it holds up. I saw it. I think uh, I've not seen it for probably a couple of years, but. I have it on DVD and it's, you know, it's, it's a film I really enjoy. I think I, I would definitely very, very comfortably recommend it. But, you know, am I having a conversation about it in the greatest films ever made? Absolutely not. It's, it's one of those ones where it's like Robert Redford as a director is quite an interesting look at his career as a director. is quite an interesting avenue because it kind of like it's like the inverse of most of the directors. He starts off winning the Oscar for his first directed film, and then his then his directing career kind of dribbles away a little yeah. bit. You know, and it doesn't really. He never really follows up on Ordinary People in 1980, winning you know winning best uh, best film and best director. I think. I suppose this this was the nearest he came after that. Possibly, but, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, been, it was on the back of a river runs through it. He got this funded, which was a, a, a sleeper hit, I guess. Brad Pitt, yeah. you know, fly fishing film. You know, who, who'd have thought? And um, <laughs> and he said, "Well, you've done you've done wonders for the fly fishing world. Let's let's head back to the 1950s TV and uh, and see what you can do with that." Interesting film. I, I, I mean, it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination, but it it. it there's a reason why, for instance, it's on your the films you might never have seen kind yeah. of list. Yeah. It kind of trickles away, and people forget about it in some ways. I mean, I, I did I did say at the start of this that um, it was a film that might not travel well and might not might not connect with British audiences. Maybe it would now, in the wake of uh, things like the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire scandal and all that. You know, we we might actually sort of start to identify with and understand what this film's actually about. Yeah, because the setting and the period and the way that TV was made back then and the whole thing, I think, I think people would, I think it's really, really quite interesting. And it is a glimpse behind the curtain. And it's obviously a glimpse of the seeds, as you say, of things like the house not being a, a millionaire scandal. I think, I think there's loads in there to be interested by and like. And yeah, I think it's really, you know, I mean, I, I, I you know, I think we're all pretty much on the same page that decent film, well worth a watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, yeah. not going to change the world, you know. So moving from a decent film, well worth to watch. 
to our final movie of, uh, of, uh, of this. And this is a movie where I am going to apologise because I will be swearing during this. Four Weddings and a Funeral. I fucking hate this movie. Yeah. Dave, I, I, the first, first thing I want to say about it is if, if you watch it again now and watch the end credits, there's, there are four words in the end credits that basically sum up everything I hate about what this film stands for. Is it Thank God It's Over? It's a credit. <laughs> Aristocracy consultant Amber Rudd. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't, I don't think anyway. many people. I don't think many people knew who Amber Rudd was in 1994, but we we do now. And I mean, she she nearly became prime minister a couple of years ago. So uh, imagine that. So yeah, she she was hired to find extras for the for the wedding scenes and she appears in it a couple of times herself i think as well so yeah it's got that whole sort of hooray henry sort of feel to it for me it's just not it's in 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 morrissey's words you know it says nothing to me about my life it's 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 not about people that i can identify with at all no i mean it's one of those movies that's taken me 20 plus years and a stellar performance in Paddington 2 to finally be able to enjoy Hugh Grant on screen now. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. Well, like... well how, how good has he been in recent years? He's, oh. he, he did like 25 years of playing these sort of bumbling um, uh, sort of tops. And, and now he's finally hitting the mark and, and showing what a, what a really great actor he is. And to be honest with you, this film, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I mean, I, I, I actually, ha- I'm a big Hugh Grant fan and have been a big Hugh Grant fan for a long time. Did you ever see Extreme Measures that he made in the 90s? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I thought he was really strong in that. Yeah. And I think he's done enough movies that I, I, I was a big fan of uh, Notting Hill. I was a big fan of... Um, of Mickey Blue Eyes, a couple of the films he's done. Now, romantic uh, comedy is the probably of all genres the one I struggle with the most. I have to, I'm, I'm very rarely drawn to a romantic comedy. I don't know why. It's just a genre that I guess I'm just, I, I, you know, it has to be really good or have a cool hook or a concept. That's why I like, you know, I've got some, you know, like, uh, you know, guilty pleasures like Mickey Blue Eyes because I like the gangster element. That kind of brings me to the table and I'll go with it, you know? And I remember when I saw this, I kind of wanted to see it because of the fuss about it all. And um, and I was kind of like really kind of going in with my nose in the end. I didn't really fancy it. But then it kind of did win me over at the start when it starts with the whole thing of them being late. And it's just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. But that whole no, 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 no. It wasn't that dumb. It was fuck, fuck, <laughs> fuck. I'm not a class warrior. I'm not. But the um, but the um, so I, <laughs> so I so I so I did um, so I did um, I enjoyed it. Although I've just written a film that is kind of a class warrior film. But the um, but yeah, so I did I I um, so it did draw me in. I, I, the uh, the dubbing of Andy McDowell drives me mental to this day. I, I mean, obviously they screwed up her sound and redubbed her, and and I didn't know why it was. I didn't know what dubbing was when I first saw it, but I knew there was something wrong with her sound. And to this day, I now know what it is and what happened. And oh drives me nuts but i didn't i didn't i didn't mind it um it definitely launched um you know put put uh, you know it's english names and put english people on the map which i it was you know it's nice to see in uh english people landing in america and it kind of made the whole thing seem more attainable to me and more possible to me 
So that kind of excited me. And I'd heard that Hugh Grant had studied in Nottingham, so it felt closer again, you know? For me, it was different with that. When I watched that, I just felt like you can only make it in America if you're making the chocolate box vision of what America thinks Britain's yeah. like. I'm, I'm, an, I'm annoyed that this represents yeah. British cinema to, to a... a, a big portion of the world exactly and so when a few years later when train spotting came out and that was a hit i was like yes that's yeah. that's much more like that's much more of a, what, a what, better what representation people to think of, of, yeah. of years of like period costume dramas with helena bonham carter and emma thompson and, th- and those kind of movies and then we had this which was a modern day movie which is practically one of those and it just frustrated the hell out of me there was that great train spotting quote, wasn't it? I think it was, I think it might have been an Empire magazine quote when it said, raises a middle finger to Hollywood. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I always yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Christ, you start, train spotting is an incredible one of my favorite films. I mean, you start comparing it to train spotting and forget it. I mean, like, you know. I mean, well, only in the depiction of British people, you know. Granted, no, I understand. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I think probably what it was with me is that I was just too, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of like, give that as an excuse but it's certainly at that age i just did, i wasn't didn't even think about it. it didn't even occur to me that type of thing and i never came from money or anything like that i just um it just didn't occur to me i think i just like oh, that's a rom-com it was all right i chuckled a few times i like hugh grant he's cool liked a couple of the other actors in it the, the, the whole kind of um the tough posh element of it no didn't didn't I just, I, i've got to be honest it just didn't occur to me you know uh, now you point it out so what you mean but and it certainly didn't bother me if i'm honest one one other element that I don't like is, uh, and um, people might not see this because it's quite it's quite well disguised in the film because you don't really focus on Andy McDowell's character much. She sort of flips flips in and out of the action. But you imagine, I, I think her character's very very badly written and has a very very poor character arc. You imagine if the film was about her. It'd be an absolutely ridiculous plot line. The things that she does and the things that happen to her and the whole thing about her getting married in the middle of the film and everything, just it doesn't make any sort of rational sense. And um, yeah, if, if it were a film about her character, it, it, it would be ridiculous. And, and yet we're supposed to accept that as as a character arc i i just don't buy it but people don't see it because they're they're the 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 film isn't structured to make you notice her i think in all fairness i perhaps should have given this another watch before we did record (laughs) this because now i'm thinking about it like i mean i could i could probably act out the other four films for you but yeah this film i don't i can't i don't think i've seen it in 20 odd years i can't remember that i mean it's just occurring to me now i'm not even sure like i fully like yeah i don't know i mean yeah, I think I think one of those ones. It's it's got that element of like pathos that's written into it with with obviously the, the funeral element, I guess, and that I think what is what allowed people to view it in a slightly more important manner than just another rom com at the time. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people you speak to about it. If you if you mention the film, most people immediately mention, "Oh, isn't that W. H. Auden poem?" wonderful you know and and my my response to that is always yeah so you like you like the bit that wasn't written by richard curtis then (laughs) on on that score i i think i think if if there is a positive to the film i think it's simon callow who who just takes it by the scruff of the neck and again as we've already said about john Turturro and morgan freeman here's a guy who just claims the movie for his own yeah, I mean, if 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 this movie had any 
should have had any business being at the Oscars. It was for his performance. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that the, as we've already said, it was arguably the best <laughs> supporting actor lineup of, of years, you know, so um, he wasn't in with a shout there. We've talked about other films being in the ether around that period. Is there anything that we maybe should have been nominated? Yeah, we've mentioned it briefly already, but Ed Wood, I think. I, I love that. Yeah, Edward's Edward. a great movie, yeah. And I mean, it's, all, it's almost surprising it wasn't nominated because, as you were saying, Quiz Show got the nod possibly because Hollywood loves movies about the entertainment industry. And Edward was just sitting there waiting to, to get that particular nod, you know, and the Quiz Show sort of beat it to the punch, really, in that respect. But uh, I think Edward's a better film than Quiz Show. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually about Hollywood or the fringes of Hollywood more than it is about... It's about filmmaking more than it's about TV. And so in some ways, it's surprising it didn't get more more attention from from the Academy. Edward's great. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Edward's a fantastic film. Great performances. Cool story. I know we're talking about best film, but I I would have loved to have seen, and I know I'm biased, but I would love to have seen Clark's get a best um, um, original screenplay nod. Yeah, uh, nomination, not not. I don't think you should have yeah. won it. In, in 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 a in a better world, uh, it, it 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 would it was good enough to get a best picture nod. <laughs> that, I, that was that was never going to happen with a film like that. But no, and 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 you think about like aristocracy and Hollywood aristocracy. I guess Robert Redford was always going to get the nod over Tim Burton. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, making a movie about possibly one of the seediest directors. But I definitely agree. I mean, uh, I, I think Edward is a better film than Quiz Show. It's a great film. Um, and I think it probably, certainly in the, you know, as if you look at the sands of time, you know, it's uh, Edward's definitely ha- held up and certainly more um, incorporated within the zeitgeist than uh, Quiz Show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I think the one that Madness of King George, um, probably having two British films in the best picture was a no no. Um, so, you know, it was Four Weddings or Madness and that was it. You know, there was no thing here. That's, Probably one of the other ones that that was in the ether. At the he, time. he was he was was he nom- he was nominated for performance, wasn't he? Yeah, he was nominated for best actor. Yeah, boys, obviously, Speed. Come on, you know we're in an era now where they're actually nominating more than five movies. Now, I think if that had been the case, then Speed Speed might have just snuck in. It's not as crazy a shout as you think, is it? I mean, no, it's, no. I guess though, I'm, I guess if it was a year where more nominations were going to be, I, I think The Lion King would probably have snuck in for Best Picture. Yeah, nowadays. In nowadays, yeah, and when when animated movies are much more um, treated seriously. Well, it would, it would have, it would have won the, um, it would have won its own Oscar in the animated category now, wouldn't it? Well, it would, yeah. But even even aside from that, it probably would have snuck into Best Picture as well. I think. I guess yeah. I guess that's the other ones I can think of. I think is some interesting. Interesting elements from the Oscars that year. Peter Capaldi won his Oscar. Yes, um, yes. Uh, future Malcolm Tucker and uh, Doctor Who for uh, his best short film, Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, uh, very, very, very good too. Yeah. Very good too. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. And um, uh, a previous victim of one of our other podcasts um, when we were discussing the Kong podcast, uh, Jessica Lang we, uh, finished her rehabilitation after the horrors of King Kong, the, the 70s remake and a career uh, explosion at that time recovered by uh, winning Best Actress this year A Blue Sky Yeah, yeah so you know, it was a long, it was a long sixteen, seventeen years for Jessica but she finally got the uh, kudos she deserves 
Lovely. And that's anything else. We'll call it a day there on 1994. Yeah. Are we going to pick a winner ourselves before we go? I, I think, is it unanimously going to be Pulp Fiction for us or what? Dom's already said Shawshank. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going for Pulp Fiction. So you've got the casting vote, Adam. I, I have to go for both. Hang on, hang on. I'm not, I've, I, I said, hang on. I've got to, I've got to jump in first. I, I, for me personally, Pulp Fiction is my favourite film. But I think for a best Oscar winner, I think that Shawshank Redemption. You know, I think it, I, I do think Shawshank probably was the deserved Oscar winner. As strange as that sounds, is it because of what you think Oscar would realistically vote? Like Pulp Fiction's got too many, too many swears in it. I think it's because the, you know, the best film at the Oscars generally, and I don't mean, I don't think this is, um, but I just think if you took a hundred people of different ages, different backgrounds, different races, and you showed them all Pulp Fiction and you showed them all Shawshank, I think the majority probably would enjoy Shawshank more. And I think yeah. that that's kind of what the Oscars is representing in a sense. I know, I know um, it should. I disagree with that, actually. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Because I think, I think if you put a hundred people in front of four weddings and a funeral, that'll probably get more votes than Shawshank. If you put 100 people in front of Jurassic no, Park or you put 100 people in front of Star Wars or something like that, or some sort of like, or Titanic, for instance, you know. I think, I think it would. Sure, sure, not Shawshank. I think Shawshank beats the lot. I really do. I think it's just such a powerful film. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, who knows? It's, that's, why, that's why I love coming on and chatting with you guys about this because you could just debate it endlessly, couldn't you? And, and, we, and I love the fact everyone, we disagree with each other, but ultimately I, there's no way of knowing. But that's, I guess that's 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 my that's my argument. But you know, I mean, who, who knows? But I do want to just before I go, boys. I do want to you know really congratulate you guys and Becky as well. Podcasts getting better and better. I'm loving it. I'm a big fan, and um, and I, I've got a few podcasts I remain loyal to and listen to all the time. And I'm definitely become a, a regular listener of you of you guys and and Becky as well. I think it's brilliant the show you're doing and keep it up. Great work getting me through this bleeding pandemic. I tell you, boys, it's great. Really good show. Thank you very much for that. I'm sorry to break the streak this one, but I'm sure they'll be back to form next week, guys. I'm telling you, don't worry about it. We we can always blame four weddings for the break. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Lovely. Thank you very much. We will be back again in a couple of weeks time for another podcast. Uh, Until then, um, enjoy. And thank you again to the BFI and to Quad for supporting this podcast. Their support really makes it possible for us to do these uh, as regularly as, as we are doing them. So hopefully you're enjoying them and we will speak to you in a couple of weeks time. Enjoy. Bye.